Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining with us for this week's podcast. Uh, Before we begin our time together, I just want to take a moment to let you know a bit of what's happening in our community this week. Namely, the Women's Bible Study is starting. It's on Mondays and Wednesdays. As well, the Community Hub is hosting a blended family seminar on January 27th. So you can check those things out on our website, southviewchurch.com, or on Realm. And the best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint. And so even as you're listening to this, there's a link to our viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we would love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of the viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. And additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now, today, no matter how you are joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant, because God is here, and Jesus invites you to bring all you are and all you are currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. So glad that you could join us for our online liturgy today and just welcome to everyone who's here. Today we are continuing with a sermon series called Grappling with Scripture. I like this word grappling. What does it bring to mind for you? Maybe wrestlers in a ring or wrestlers on a mat. I like this word because of what it tells us about what reading Scripture is like. Perhaps it's like this picture right here. Grappling describes a sport that consists of gripping or seizing an opponent. Grappling as an action is a close-range move used to gain physical advantage over your opponent. The metaphor we're using might actually fail here because we're not seeking to gain an advantage over Scripture per se, But neither do we, the readers, just lay down and let scriptural passages that perplex us push us over as if our life experience or our circumstances don't matter. Rather, by grappling, we enter into a tension between the Word of God and our lives. Us with our sins, our frailties, and our wounds, and God with his perfect love his desire to sanctify us and heal us all the way through and using his word as part of that process. This takes work. As Augustine, a pro wrestler of scripture, if there ever was one, wrote this years ago, he said, it is not for nothing that by your will, by God's will, so many pages of scripture are opaque or obscure. What is Augustine saying here? He's saying that God has designed Scripture so that when we read it, we have to work at it. Reading Scripture faithfully is not a gimme. It takes work. It takes diligence. It takes grappling with the text over time. And if you do this, you will find incredible treasures and blessings, pools of consolation, and moments of new spiritual health and vitality. And this week, we have another ring-a-ding-dang dandy. Now, you have to be old to know where that comes from, 
That's from Ed Whalen when I was a teenager growing up. He'd be at the corral with Stampede Wrestling. He'd always start with that line before a big wrestling match. It's going to be a ring-a-ding-dang-dandy. So one of the biggest challenges to our faith in our time is questions about God as we see him in the Old Testament. Perhaps the most famous critique about the Old Testament depictions of God in contemporary culture comes from the atheist Richard Dawkins. And this is what he wrote. He said, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomachoistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Wow, that is a sentence. It is a word salad. It is a biting critique. And though I think it wildly unfair and certainly one-sided, it is a popular critique. And and one that those who love Scripture and seek to be formed in their faith through it must take seriously. Even among many who faithfully follow Jesus, there's a real struggle with these texts from the Old Testament where God seems to either explicitly or implicitly endorse and command violence. For some of us, this might seem like a bit of a matter-of-fact issue. We might think, God is God. And if he chooses to punish or inflict pain and suffering, then it is his divine right to do so. It's as if God, in his transcendence, in this view, can operate above and outside of the ethics he gives to his own people. This is one potential way to handle this question. And some might feel it okay. Yet many who were raised on this kind of thinking have simply walked away from the Christian faith. They reject this premise and the, the particular picture of God that it conveys. So what about some other options for how we can answer our questions about the apparent anger and violence of God? Well, let's look at our text today for insight. And our text today comes from one of those challenging Old Testament passages that we've just been referring to. And this one is in Exodus 32, 27 and 28. And friends, this is the word of God. And this is what it says. And he said to them, and this is Moses, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. Now, these two verses dump us right into the middle of an Old Testament scene where Israel is acting out. Moses has left the people and gone up to Mount Sinai to meet with God. And while he is gone, he leaves his faithful sub-commander, Aaron, in charge. Aaron in this story is the rookie substitute teacher that gets the runaround by the kids. And this is what it says about it in Exodus 31, verse 1. 
It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. You can almost hear the panic or the collective hyperventilating of the Israelites. These ex-slaves are fearful and need the assurance and presence of the one who has led them to this point. And so because Moses is not there, and either, and either is this sense of God, they want to know from Aaron what other deity is available. <coughs> Excuse me. What do you have for us, Aaron? Do you have a deity that does not make us wait? One who is on demand? One that we can see and control? We need relief from our anxiety, and we need it now. So then in Exodus 32, 2, this is how Aaron responds. He says to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, and he made a golden calf. And they said, and, and they said, These are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then a kind of worship party ensues. They planned out. It's lackadaisical. It's underwhelming, and it seems devoid of any sense of the holiness of God. And so what has happened here? Why all the impatience? And why the rapid swap of Yahweh to this golden calf? After all the miracles God has done to free them from Pharaoh and slavery, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, to lead them out of Egypt, Israel was so relieved and joyful, and they praised God. And then they complained about food and water and the lack of it. And so then God provided manna and quail and water, and they praised God and thanked him for that. And the journey into the Exodus has been this seesaw of complaint and then God's response. God has been faithful all along this way, and he understands that these ex-slaves are struggling to have faith and trust in him. So he keeps showing up, keeps delivering help and support. But then they make a golden calf. And we see God's response to this in verse 10. God says to Moses, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. God is angry. And before we get into the actual specifics of why he's angry, let's set three ground rules or three principles for reading these kinds of passages. And then we'll use those three principles in a bit to exegete Exodus 32. So here's our three principles. First, principle number one, stories like this of God's anger are a minority report in the Old Testament. In focusing on them too much, we might miss the forest for the trees. In this case, the Bible is the forest and God's anger is the tree. And for victims and survivors of violence or maybe an angry controlling home, it's probably one very big tree. 
And so for you, it's okay to go really slow on this and take your time in understanding, not just with your head, but with your heart, because God wants to nurture our hearts. But I think it is fair to also try to see this question of anger or violence in light of all the other characteristics we see of God in the biblical text. For example, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann has pointed out that there's a statement about God in the Old Testament that is something of a credo, or what we would call a creed in the Old Testament. It is five words, five adjectives, and this is what Walter Brueggemann says are the most common adjectives for describing God in the Old Testament. And they are, they are merciful, gracious, faithful, forgiving, and finally, steadfast in love. And where do we find this credo that Brueggemann is referring to? Well, it's actually in Exodus 34. It's two short chapters after the chapter we're studying. Um, and this is what the text says in Exodus 34. And you might be familiar with this story too, where Moses wants to see more of God, wants to see his, all of God's glory. You look at God right in the face. Uh, and when God does reveal himself, he does reveal himself as far as the transcendent, glorious God of creation can. And this is what the text says that Moses saw. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And why are these verses considered a credo? Well, Brueggemann says it's because other writers took up this refrain. It's written in Exodus, but then it's repeated over and over in the Old Testament. In Numbers 14.18, Psalm 103.8, 111.4, Psalm 145.8, Nehemiah, and Joel. For example, one of the most classic ones, or one of the most pithy, is Psalm 145.8, where it simply says the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Or, in Psalm 36, 5, and 6, we get a slightly different modulation, but if you tune your ears in, you can hear the same words being hit from back in Exodus 34. And that psalm says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. So we've learned our first thing. Our second principle we have is that the Old Testament is a foreign culture. Years ago, I took a group of 10 teenagers up, to, up from Morden in southern Manitoba up to Arviat in Nunavut, way up north. We were still in Canada, but we were north of the tree line. And we were very far north of our culture in our Mennonite community of Morden. There were some eye-opening moments as we got to look into what Inuit life was like, the culture, the background, the history. We even ate some raw caribou. And so they would freeze caribou, and at a social event, they would put it in the middle of the table, 
and people would come up and just cut off a piece of frozen caribou and pop it in their mouth like we would a potato chip. That was an experience. I learned in this trip after a couple of misunderstanding that you can't go barging into another culture, especially as a white person, and assume you know what's going on and project your values and your ways of doing things. We learned very quickly to listen and to understand why the Inuit would operate the way they did and to respect and honor the differences between Mennonite and Inuit cultures. And so we have a news flash here as we look into the Old Testament. When we read, we must acknowledge that we are not ancient Jews. Rather, in a sense, we are tourists in their world trying to understand all the social cues and the background. I think at times, our waning knowledge of the Old Testament and its context and history leads to misunderstandings of the text for us. So the cultural exegesis or study that we are called to is a challenge. It can be challenging to dig in and kind of wonder, okay, what's going on in this different culture? But it's a challenge with a blessing. As Old Testament scholar Brent Strawn has suggested, it is precisely the difficulties and grittiness of the Old Testament stories that give rise to the need for subtler and defter interpretation. And so we're being called into discipleship, into this challenging study. Before we can assume that we know what the text means, that God is mean or a bully, we need to learn how to ask these kinds of good questions. And then we must listen. For instance, very simply, we might ask of our text in Exodus 32, why is God angry? What has aroused God's, God's anger? Or what is it about this golden calf that, ex, that, that evokes such an angry response from God and from Moses? Or, uh, not only why is violence being endorsed by God here in the text, but we could go take a much more macro level and ask the question, why is there, why is there this theme of violence or just violence all across uh, the ancient world in these ancient groups, whether they be Jews or Canaanites or whatever, it's a very, very violent context. So there's a much bigger story beyond this one that sets the stage for us as readers of the text to understand what is happening and how it fits all together. And so we can learn that violent skirmishes and war between rival groups is the norm in the ancient world. And the common view of the peoples in those days is that each tribe's God, whoever your God may be, is on their side and will support them in their war campaigns or in whatever endeavors you are undertaking. The problem with the worship practices of these ancient groups is that they worshiped and sacrificed and prayed not to lean into the freedom of grace and forgiveness, but instead to know how to appease how to control, and how to work, and we might say even the word manipulate, their God to get what they want. For example, if the golden calf can get us out of Egypt, like the text suggested there, what do we have to do to get that golden calf to do other favors in our lives? The third principle we learn here is to read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. 
My point here is that we should simply read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus' life. It's as simple as that. If we are a people who believe in the reality of the Trinity, perhaps then it is helpful to see the links between God the Father in this story and Jesus the Son and also the Holy Spirit the Comforter in other stories to compare and contrast. Because God is a Trinity and the Trinity is unified in mission. God has the same mission. Jesus has the same mission. Holy Spirit has the same mission. So how does each one reinforce and support each other in this process? So would it help us to see God in these older texts of violence through the lens of Jesus? Would it give us a bit of a different picture? And we see this in the book of John most explicitly when he talks about his relationship with the Father in heaven. And here's a couple verses that give some insight in who God is and who Jesus is. In John 5.19, it says, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So whatever Jesus does, it's, it's a response to the Father in heaven. Or in John 1.18, he says this, No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. And so Jesus is stating this claim here that even as Moses wanted to see God in Exodus 34, Jesus is saying he has seen the Father in heaven and he's making him known. We could add Hebrews 1 where it says this, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. And so we can ask a couple questions after this. Is God, the Father of Jesus Christ, the God we see depicted in this story in Exodus 32, fundamentally and consistently a God of wrath? Is this his primary or controlling side of his being? Or is God the Father who is the Father of Jesus a God who feels occasional or temporary anger at the power of sin and at his people on occasion for so willingly and habitually going along. So with these three principles in line, let's grapple with this text. Let's go back to our text now and ask some of the preliminary questions about the anger of God in Exodus 32. And let's use this principle of the Old Testament is a foreign culture. Okay, so here we go. There's three questions. Why is he angry? What is he angry about? And to what end or purpose? First, why is God angry? Well, first off, let's strike down a couple of reasons that God could be criticized for being angry. For example, is he angry in Exodus 32, saying, after all I have done for you, Israel, you dump me just like that for this golden calf, no one does that to God. You're going to pay for this. Does God's anger ever have that tone? You are going to pay for this sin. The second one, I think, uh, is, can be a common one sometimes too, is, could sound something like th this. Is God saying, in a sense, 
I have a purpose and a plan that I started with your forefather Abraham, and now I want to move it along. And you, Israel, are not cooperating with my grand design. How dare you not do what I want you to do? So does God have that kind of angry vibe sometimes? How dare you? I think if we don't do any research and we don't see this story in light of the Trinity, that these, for some of us, can be easy default understandings. But I want to be really crystal clear here. These are wrong interpretations of the text. It is toxic to think that God's anger might ever come from ego or narcissism or an offended sense of pride in himself or anything like that. God never, ever acts out of wounded ego because God does not have an ego. He does not have an ego. Let's look, for example, at God the Son in John 13 uh, for an illustration of this. And this is a story where Jesus goes and he washes the disciples' feet. And it's kind of an odd story because, because he shouldn't be the one doing it because he's the rabbi, he's the teacher, he's the leader. Yet nobody, none of the other 12 disciples wants to. So he quite gladly uh, takes up that role. And this is what John tells us in chapter 13, 3 and 4. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things in his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Jesus has nothing to prove. Jesus does not need to protect his ego. His identity as the Son of God is completely secure. No matter what he does, or no matter what anyone else says about him, he knows who he is, or whose he is. He is the eternal Son proceeding from the Father in heaven. And nothing on earth can change that. God also, in Exodus 32, has nothing to prove. Whether his people obey him or not, it will not affect his sense of self, his completeness as the holy Lord of all. So then why is God angry here? I think it is related to the appearance of the golden calf, but not as some sort of interloper, like someone who's going to compete with God for the affections of Israel. But it's the golden calf as a sign of, of where his people are heading to their own detriment and their own well-being, not only individually, individually, but as a community. And so it is what the golden calf represents that is so troubling to God. The golden calf not only demonstrates a rejection of Yahweh, but a manufacturing of a God of their own liking. It is not a God hidden in his holiness in the tent of meeting, like the real God of creation, but it is an easy access God out in the open. The calf is not, a transcend, is not the transcendent and actual creator and redeemer of the world that brings life. It is an inert hunk of gold that symbolizes in their ancient culture the unrestrained pursuit of wealth and virility and control. And God is angry that they are choosing to be sinful and choosing this, they are cutting themselves off from what will actually give them life and give their community life and health. 
And when seen in this light, this anger we see expressed here in Exodus 32 actually sounds a little bit like another story we can read about Jesus when he wept over Jerusalem in Matthew 23:37. And Jesus has come to Jerusalem. He knows what's ahead for him with the cross. And he looks over Jerusalem and he says these words. Uh, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And yet you were not willing. Could this moment of God's response to Israel in Exodus 32 be similar to this moment? They are both a response to Israel's waywardness. They are both a response from God that expressed strong emotion. They are both expressions of concern about the direction and future of the people of God. There's another verse in the New Testament that talks about the grieving of the Holy Spirit, isn't there? Ephesians 4.30. Could it be that the Old Testament writers depict one side of the character of God in this, and we can look elsewhere for a fuller picture of the response of God to ongoing sin. And so by taking this approach, we start overcoming the somewhat predictable and flat approach of saying, God is just a violent bully here. We are seeing that there's a good and healthy and life-affirming purpose or direction that God is working towards. It started with Abraham and leading him out of Ur. And yet in our story, this particular people, these chosen Jewish people, the ones rescued from Pharaoh, are ready to self-sabotage, to throw it all away, to allow themselves to be enslaved by an idol. God is speaking in a sense, and he's saying these words, it makes me angry to see you hurt and wound yourselves by stepping out of my will, because going this route is really going to damage you and lead to great social injustice. Or as Terence Fretheim has suggested, the commentator, he said, the ironic effect is that the people forfeit the very divine presence that they had hoped to bind most closely to themselves. And so this gives us a picture of this passage, but how about us? Does God have a word for us today? Does it grieve and even anger God at times when we self-sabotage? When we stay in ruts or go back over and over again to an addiction or a behavior whose sin wounds us, our family, our cities, our futures as a people, or our community of faith? Is there even a frustration or a prompt from God, or even kind of a cheerleader moment, uh, where he is calling us as the church to step out of self-sabotage and step into kingdom? God, the God of heaven and earth, is like no other God or idol, is what this, this passage is telling us. He is trying to do something different with people. He is trying to lead Israel and us out of religion, out of trying to work him, of treating him like a golden calf or like an Asherah pole or whatever. He is a God who wants to build an, a flourishing community with ethics from the Ten Commandments and structure and empower us and them in being in relationship with him. 
He sees that, he, that the Israelites can be more than they are now, a, a bunch of ruly ex-slaves just trying to survive, just looking for quick fixes, just going with the flow with no real purpose and direction. And I think God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit love it when we bring our sinfulness, we bring our golden calves to God uh, and cast them away. It says in the story that when Moses saw the calf, if we go back to Exodus 32, and that means when he saw the calf, it wasn't just the calf itself, but it's what the calf represented. It says that he took the calf that they had made in verse 20, and he burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people drink it. That's one way to get rid of an idol. This might be a bit much for us today. But God does want to help us destroy these idols in our lives and give us something much better. And that is himself. And instead of a quick fix that does not satisfy, he offers walking patiently, faithfully, and prayerfully with us day by day in those ups and downs, just like he did with Israel. He does not just want us to pursue that which will not satisfy, but lean into him and into these challenging Old Testament texts and have him shape and form us to be alive and free in him and his kingdom. Amen. Well, let's pray and ask God to work in our lives. And so, God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you that we're able to open your word uh, and learn from you. We thank you, God, that you love us, and you love us enough to challenge us, to even give us the faithful wound of a friend, because you are our friend, and you want to call us deeper and deeper into spiritual health and into your kingdom. And so we bless you for that. Help us discern and know the moments when you are doing this in our lives and follow you faithfully. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. And now a benediction from 2 Corinthians 13, where it says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Please go in the peace of Christ.